The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll, and it's Friday the 13th. So it seems appropriate that we do something horrific, and we will. But first, the Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan uh, calling you. Uh, we got a special surprise joke telling sit in with my wife, Susan Holmes McKagan. <laughs> Let's go. What do you got? I asked my wife if I was the only one she then was. She said, yeah. All the others had been nines and tens. See ya! All right, Duff, with a little help from his Mrs. Susan Holmes McKagan, delivering the joke of the week, and uh, she's much funnier than he is. But today is Friday the 13th. Do you have Parascaveda catriophobia? And it's the appropriate day to drop this show on you on the scariest day of the year. Well, besides Halloween, uh, the Canadian Horror Podcast. I got James Janis from the popular Dead Meat YouTube channel. They do the kill counts for horror movies and have a great podcast. They break down horror, do watch-alongs, trivia, all that stuff. My daughters love Dead Meat James. So I got Dead Meat James on, and we're doing a deep dive into Canadian horror movies made in Canada and or made by Canadian filmmakers. We're talking about films like Black Christmas, which pretty much directly inspired John Carpenter to make Halloween, a bunch of David Cronenberg movies like Shivers, The Fly with Jeff Goldblum, and of course, the creepy Videodrome. I got a great story about Videodrome as well. I was almost a air part owner of that movie. And we're talking with The Changeling, my buddy Valentine, Ginger Snaps, Cube, the Canadian TV series called Slasher, which is amazing. You guys got to watch that. Lots of cool trivia about the movies, the kill scenes, the genre in general. But before we get to Dead Meat James in Canadian horror, we're just a couple weeks away from Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at Sea. The Four Leaf Clover leaving February 2nd from Miami to Great Stirrup K. We set sail with an amazing lineup of talent, probably half of AEW's on board. And the only place you get to see Jericho Hausen, the team of Jericho, which is me, and Dan Hausen. We're going to take on the guns. It's the only place to see the inaugural crowning of the Jericho Cruise, Oceanic Champion as well. So much great AEW talent will be out with us as well. Lucha Brothers, Ray Fenix, Pento, El Sierro, Mierdo, 
uh, Jade Cargill, Swerve Strickland, the entire Jericho Appreciation Society, the acclaimed Wardlow, Mark Henry, Swerve Strickland, so many more. Brutus the Barber, Beefcake, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan. We're going to be announcing all of our great uh, Talk is Jericho episodes that we're going to be doing on board. Fozzie's playing three shows. Four Talk is Jericho shows, like I said. Quarantine. What more do you want? Quiet Riot. Raven. It's going to be amazing. Going to our own private island for the first time ever in Great Stir of K. Still cabins left. Only a few, though. So book yours now at Chris Jericho Cruise. Dot com and come join us for the vacation of a lifetime. Believe me, you do not want to miss this. And you don't want to miss this episode either here on Friday the 13th. It's Canadian Horror with Dead Meat James on Talk is Jericho. So there's very few um, things that uh, my teenage daughters think that I'm cool for. It's not for the reasons that you think. Uh, it's not wrestling or Fozzie or podcasting or cruise. I'm sure they think that's cool. But the fact that I know Dead Meat James is uh, one of the biggest uh, cool factor moments that I have going for me right now. So it's a no-brainer to have James on Talk is Jericho because I had just done your show as well when we talked in depth about Sleepaway Camp 2. That's all right. Hey, man. How's it going? <laughs> Good. You have built quite the empire. My daughter's always talking about the kill counts from dead meat before we kind of get into our topic because we were looking for a good one we found one tell me kind of how this all started and how you're able to build this horror movie empire yeah it's been nuts i mean at this point we've been doing it for five and a half years which is not a short amount of time you know we're pretty established at this point but before that my now wife and i who we met at college in the film program at university of michigan we were making comedy sketches and such on YouTube on another channel called Practical Folks. Right. And we did this drunk Disney series where we got drunk watching Disney movies. We were having a fun time making videos and finding, you know, moderate success, but that really plateaued. And after four years of doing that, I wanted to find a way to, you know, jump up to the next level. So I decided to start a new channel about a new topic. And horror movies is like a lifelong passion of mine. I knew that I could speak with some expertise about it at the very least <laughs> with a real fandom that I think people would connect to lo and behold, they did. And six months after publishing the first video on dead meat, I was able to leave my full-time job and do dead meat as a career. And I've never looked back since. I mean, what an amazing thing to be able to say that you did, you know, you, you were able to leave the full-time job, just talking about horror movies. Yeah, and man. once again, becoming kind of a, a pundit, an expert on that, how are you able to show the kill counts on your YouTube channel without having like to get permission from the studios and all that sort of thing? Dude, that is an entire headache, man. That is an everyday stressor for me, honestly. Uh, you know, when you, when you start off, no one really cares because anyone can upload a video to YouTube, whatever. And they do have the automated processes that'll flag stuff and, and capture it automatically. But obviously at this point, we're getting noticed. I mean, we're working with a lot of studios for promotional stuff, which you think would maybe help us out in that regard. Sure. These studios are so large that the marketing departments are entirely separated from the legal departments. And the legal departments are saying, hey, if you want to use these clips, you have to pay us, you know, $10,000 a week to properly license them. Wow. You know, we're doing well, but not that well. <laughs> we can't quite afford that. Yeah. So at this point, it's really just a do what we can get away with. And we believe that our product falls under fair use because it's commentary, it's 
criticism. It's educational. We're showing a lot of the behind the scenes stuff about how these movies are made. But uh, fair use is a very murky, ambiguous topic. And who knows what would hold up in court if we could afford to go to court. So at this point, it's really just a ask for forgiveness rather than permission type of situation, you know? Right. And uh, most of the studios have turned a blind eye to it because I think they recognize that we're getting a lot more people watching their movies. For every one person who would have watched a movie but instead watched one of my videos, I think there are five people who would have never watched the movie in the first place, saw the video and was like, oh, I'll check this thing out. At least that's what I hear from, from the fans. And I just spent a weekend at Monster Palooza hearing firsthand from all these fans. So I don't know. Well, that makes sense to me. You know what I mean? It's like playing a song on the radio or something. You're kind of a, a billboard for the movies. Yeah. And like I said, I mean, the word does get around. And especially with teenagers, when you have the teenage market, that's always a, a good one to have. Yeah. Here's my thing, Chris, is I feel like the people who are like, oh, I don't need to watch the movie because I watched your video, James. They were never going to watch the movie in the first place. Exactly. They don't have that attention span. <laughs> I'd be the opposite. I remember uh, when... Rich Ward from Fozzie first told me about Terrifier. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll watch it. And then he showed me the, the famous Hacksaw kill. And I was like, I had to see the movie after that. <laughs> but before we get into the topic of, of Canadian horror, you mentioned something briefly that we could do a whole other show on, but we should mention it, that 2022, uh, speaking of Terrifier, and yeah. Terrifier 2 more specifically, has been a huge year for horror, especially after the lockdown, everyone's back in the theaters. And thankfully, there are some great movies ready and waiting for the people to come back. Um, it has really been a banner year for, for the horror genre this year. It's the strongest year for horror I can think of, honestly. I mean, I'm sure that if I were alive in the 80s and cognizant of what was coming out, maybe there would be a year from that decade where it seemed like, yeah, like maybe like 1984, if it's the first Friday and the first nightmare or, or something like that. Yeah. You know? Something yeah. like that. But this year, I mean, it, I think it's a combination of, of all these movies that weren't released in 2020 or 2021 coming out. And just, I don't, I think the genre is in the best place it's ever been because as opposed to having this dominant sub genre that you see every few years, like, you know, in the early two thousands, we had the torture porn stuff going on. Right. And then we went into the, like the remake reboot craze. At this point, it feels like it's kind of the wild west. Everyone's making whatever they want to. I feel like that was kind of ushered in, in 2017 with the one, two punch of get out and it because get out was one of the rare horror films that got critical acclaim, even getting nominated for an Oscar. And then it was just such a massive juggernaut at the box office that I think it really showed filmmakers, oh, horrors here. You can either be super successful financially or make a really fun art movie the way you want to, and it'll still be well-received. So yeah, every time I try to list the horror movies that have come out this year in 2022, I, I can't do it. There's just too many. From Scream in January to Terrifier 2, which just got a uh, third weekend expansion, which I'm grateful for because that means I can see it in theaters because I've been too busy the past two weeks. Really want to see it. But all the movies in between, it's not like fresh. Bodies, bodies, bodies. You got franchise movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween Ends. And you got entirely new ones like Jordan Peele's Nope. Things I still haven't seen, like they slash them. I, it's just impossible to name them all. Has Pearl come out yet? Even Pearl came out. Yeah, Pearl and X. Ty West releases two X was movies amazing. in one yeah. year. X, I love X. Yeah, man. X was great. You know, and then we're and we're talking like X was so good because it was such a throwback. 
and just batshit crazy. Like no spoilers, yeah. but but when there's a, a a giant alligator kill, you know you got <laughs> something going on there. You know, and just Terrifier too. I mean, Terrifier two reminds me a lot of of Paranormal Activity or Blair Witch in that the word of mouth is pushing this movie and make $10, $15 million on a $250 million budget. I mean, that's great to hear. What's so cool about Terrifier 2, because here's the thing. I saw Terrifier. I thought the makeup effects were amazing. I thought Art the Clown is an incredible villain. Besides those things, I was like, whatever with this first Terrifier. This second movie is announced. It's announced that it's two hours and 15 minutes long and unrated. And I'm like, what are they doing here? Right, but yeah. then it comes out. I've heard nothing but good things. <laughs> People are vomiting and fainting, which I don't know how real that is. But it's just such a fun word of mouth marketing thing. And like you said, such a low budget released unrated, which is uh, supposed to be box office suicide. But it's doing <laughs> yeah, so well. Exactly. Like, this is such a win for indie horror movies that I'm so proud of the people who made it. And I can't wait to see it. Like Damien, like good job, man. I can't wait until you see it, man. Yeah, there's some serious uh, action going on there, but uh, but some serious gore, and it is completely insane. And, of course, I'm in it, so even better. Yeah, dude, that's why I, I can't <laughs> wait to see it. <laughs> the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's get to the subject at hand. We were looking for something cool. And you came up with a, with a very good topic. Canadian horror movies. Of course, I am Canadian. And I never realized how many movies are Canadian uh, until we started kind of delving into it. Yeah. There's some here that I've, once again, like you and Terrifier 2, that I've heard of mm-hmm. but haven't seen. So it would be great to kind of discuss that. Uh, wh- why did you think of this topic? Are you very much into Canadian horror films? Is there a certain vibe to them? Well, it's definitely because you're Canadian. Uh, that was kind of the entryway. I'm also, I'm from Michigan, the Detroit area. So we feel like honorary Canucks sometimes. Right, right. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Whenever us Michiganders turn 19, we head over to Windsor so we can drink legally. That's kind of a yeah. rite of passage for us. So always felt a close kinship to our neighbors up north. And also, yeah, I just want to go over the contributions of Canada to the horror genre because I feel like people don't realize you have arguably the first ever slasher and you've given us uh, David Cronenberg, who is a titan of the genre. There's just a lot of really interesting, cool movies that I think don't get necessarily enough recognition. So I'd love to uh, yeah, discuss those things. Well, let's get into it, man. You mentioned uh, where do you want to jump in? The very first slasher? Let's start with that. Black Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, OK, Black Christmas comes out in 1974. Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out earlier that same year, but I never really felt like Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a straight-up slasher. It feels more like its own kind of grindhousey, weird exploitation movie. It, it doesn't follow the the slasher pattern that I think Black Christmas really establishes and that Halloween ends up aping four years later. Everyone thinks of Halloween as the first slasher, and it's definitely the one that started this brush fire of slashers that lasted from like 78 to 82 Right. <laughs> Black Christmas predates Halloween by four years. Wow. And has all the same. It starts off with the killer POV 
of the camera going into the house. Have you seen the original Black Christmas? Absolutely. I figured. And uh, what is interesting, though, is that, that director Bob Clark is a American-born. I think he was actually born in Detroit and emigrated to Canada. So it's a Canadian film for sure. Well, Bob Clark also went on to do Porky's as well. That's right. What an interesting career to do, like, the first ever slasher and then uh, seminal, like, sex comedy. It's so yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. To t- talk about the kind of having the, the yin and yang of movies, and both of them are classics in their own way. Yeah, I mean, but of course, comedy and horror go hand in hand. They're my two favorite genres. I think they're forever tied together. They're the two genres that are always trying to get a physical, emotional response from the audience, which is very difficult to do. They're trying to, you know, evoke, yeah, that physical either laughter or screaming. I I think they've always gone hand in hand, which is why horror comedy is such a popular subgenre. But Black Christmas, yeah, man, if you watch this thing and then watch Halloween, you'll see how many similarities they have. What's interesting is that I think John Carpenter was actually directly inspired. He, he doesn't deny that he was inspired by Black Christmas. And I think that Bob Clark actually gave him the idea for Halloween by saying, I kind of want to make a Black Christmas sequel, but set it during a different holiday. And then when he didn't go through with that, John Carpenter just took those reins and went ahead and made Halloween. Well, it's interesting, too, because I remember I, I saw this a long time ago, and this is kind of one of the uh, original don't answer the phone type thing. He, he's upstairs in the house. And I remember the suffocation with the plastic bag. Mm-hmm. And I still remember that now. And you mentioned this. It is very much a Halloween, uh, the trope of, of a horror movie. A lot of these tropes were in Black Christmas. So if you're saying it's kind of one of the first, that is pretty cool to know that. Yeah. And, you know, the, the comedy is there too, which is really fun because – I like it when horror movies, even when they're not horror comedies, still have some levity to them. This movie's got like the the house mother. I forget her name, but she's such an alcoholic. She's like hiding bottles of booze in the toilet tank and like fishing them out <laughs> <Yeah>. to drink. <laughs> Mrs. Mac. Mrs. Mac. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like when one of the dads of one of the girls comes to visit the house, she's just so fed up with how prissy he is. And you got Margot Kidder here as as Barbara. She is hilarious with how much she just doesn't give a damn about any anything and is messing with the cops you got john saxon in a role that's pretty much his nightmare on elm street role 10 years earlier which is pretty much every role that he plays (laughs) yeah god i love that guy i'm so glad he lived for so long i never got to meet him unfortunately because he he passed away recently in his 90s i'm pretty sure but every time i see him he He's a delight, man. <laughs> he was delight, and, and then, of course, uh, Andrea Martin, SCTV alumni, which Canada yep. is the original SNL type of a thing. She is in the movie. A quick story about Margot Kidder. I met her at a comic convention, horror convention, gosh, probably 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And she knew us. She goes, oh, Chris Jericho, I know you. And I said, oh, let's take a picture together. So we took a picture together. She goes, that'll be $20. <laughs> <laughs> nice, dude. That's, that's how those conventions work, man. <laughs> You better have your camera in one hand, your wallet in the other. In your wallet in the other. But, but, she, but she was like, hey, let's take a picture. So anyways, so a great kind of a Canadian classic. And like you mentioned, very much a pioneer type of a film. So uh, you might want to check that one out if you haven't seen it yet. Of course, they, they did a, a remake of it, which was- They did two remakes of it. Two remakes of it. Okay. They did go. one in the early 2000s, and that's very super gory, disgusting. Did you ever see that one? That one has a- uh, No. Mary Elizabeth Winstead, but before she really broke out, so she's just like a minor character. But the rest of the cast is all these early 2000s, well-known names like Lacey Chabert is in there. Oh, nice. It's 
a different movie that takes inspiration from the original. Very gory. We're talking eyeballs coming out of skulls and everything. And then, yeah, there was another remake a few years ago that was uh, not super well received. It went a little too hard in the... It was unsubtly social, which I don't mind social messages in my movie. This original Black Christmas has this whole abortion subplot, actually, which is interesting to see in 1974. Oh, wow. But yeah, the, the latest one, maybe not done quite as uh, adeptly. <laughs> and just quickly, too, before we move on, that I just I was looking at some, some different trivia here, that John Carpenter was inspired by Bob Clark, who actually did an interview saying, what would a sequel to Black Christmas look like? And that's when John Carpenter said, well, then it would be on Halloween. That's kind of the next big holiday. That's right. What do we got next here, uh, James? So next in the timeline of movies that I have is 1975's Shivers, which is David Cronenberg's first big movie. That guy has had so many films and a lot of his later ones are better known from Scanners to Videodrome to The Fly, which might be his most mainstream movie. But I just uh, wanted to at least briefly touch upon Shivers because I believe it was one of the earlier movies to take this capital cost allowance. Are you familiar with that? Well, it's probably something to do with Canadian content, which is this thing in Canada called the CTRC, which is the Canadian television recording something or other, which means you have to give a certain point of, of the money to Canadian films. Uh, you have to play a certain amount of music on Canadian radio, a certain amount of Canadian TV shows on the, on the network. So there is, uh, like you're saying, kind of a, a foundation or a grant that you will get if you're filming a movie in Canada. Yeah, it's kind of a, a tax shelter situation. Tax break, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, where, uh, so this was established in 1974. So I don't think Black Christmas took advantage of this, but Shivers definitely did. And yeah, it's called the Capital Cost Allowance CCA, and it allowed investors to deduct 100% of the money that they invested in a Canadian film as long as it was, you know, a, like you said, a Canadian film. And so David Cronenberg goes ahead and uses that to make shivers. And immediately people are like, this is where our taxpayer dollars are going. This weird ass <laughs> movie, because I don't know if you've ever seen shivers. I just watched it recently for the first time in anticipation for this podcast. It is a bizarre movie where a bunch of people in a luxury high rise apartment building start to get infected they're basically sex zombies right. they get infected by slugs that make them super horny and then they just want to have sex with other people and pass it on and so you know cronenberg <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know is a filmmaker who his big thing is body horror you see a lot of like flesh tearing apart and like transforming and kind of melting like the fly has a lot of flesh melting gotcha. so this is kind of the start of that with all these like very fleshy slugs uh, swimming around, going into people's bodies. And then again, that makes them horny. So they're, they're ripping each other's clothes off and, and just having sex in the aisles. And, and the protagonists are trying to avoid it. And again, it was so funny. It's, it's that thing where it's an art house movie. It's made in an interesting way. But when you look at the face of it, you're like, this is what the government's paying people to make. And it almost got it canceled outright. Like it almost got this tax credit ruined. Well, it is funny too, because you know, it's a very much of a political commentary on STDs. Yeah. The tagline is they came from within, which is a double entendre. If I've ever heard one. <laughs> yeah. Long before it follows ever did it. Yeah, sure. Shivers. <laughs> and, and you mentioned in your email, I mean, you could say any David Cronenberg, movie, but David Cronenberg, for those who don't know, really is a Wes Craven of a Toby Hooper, so to speak of, of Canada. And that he has 
made some uh, of the greatest and some of the worst <laughs> yeah. Canadian movies of, of all time. Uh, so why don't we do a little bit of a David Cronenberg uh, segue here? Not only Shivers, sure. but let's move on to uh, to some of his other classics. Like I mentioned, The Fly is probably his best known, maybe. Because that's Jeff got Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum, yeah. of course. Uh, maybe Jeff Goldblum at his peak. Yeah, I agree. Like, he just looks ripped in that. He's great. I mean, that guy is always an attractive man. But in there, he's just absolutely ripped. And that's him accidentally getting some fly genes infused into his body. So he starts this nasty transformation into this human fly hybrid. He's crawling on the walls and and flicking his tongue out. It's been a minute since I've seen it, but it really sticks with you. It does stick with you, especially when you, you know, uh, once again, it's the, uh, uh, the remake of the movie from the sixties or whatever it was, except for this one has some kind of a a morphing machine where people get caught, you know, half fly, half, half person. It really is a great one. That's, and that's probably, Cronenberg's most mainstream film, I'd say, because when you go back to his two kind of most famous, more of, I guess I call them Fangoria films, because I read about them in Fangoria, which would be Scanners and Videodrome. Mm-hmm. Videodrome is very strange. It's almost a David Lynch type film. I, I never really understood it. Is it is kind right? of yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't really get a lot of that. Scanners is more is more straightforward. Let's talk about that one for a bit. Sure, Scanners, whoever is listening to this probably hasn't seen Scanners, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, but I would bet that they've seen a gif from it. It's it's the guy's head exploding. It's, yeah, it's the guy exactly. has like glasses, he's like a balding guy in a suit, and then his head just blows up. I see that gif everywhere. It Actually, the Wikipedia article on Scanners has its own subsection for the head explosion effect. <laughs> which is really funny to me. It's the classic moment, yeah. Yeah, this is another movie it's been a while since I've seen, but it, it, yeah, it's got that sci-fi element to it that Cronenberg usually mixes into his movies. It, it's also got kind of a, I don't know, a, a paranoia, almost like a, like a They Live style, one person mired in a conspiracy trying to fight back against a conspiracy. Cronenberg movies, I think, often have that. Videodrome similarly has that going on. Right, it's funny too because... I think it, people get confused Michael Ironside mm-hmm. with John Saxon. They are not the same guy. <laughs> They're <laughs> they not. are two separate guys. Similar types. <laughs> and you actually see um, uh, on the movie poster, I believe that is uh, uh, Michael Ironside as he's starting to explode. Yeah. 10 seconds, the pain begins. 15 seconds, you can't breathe. 20 seconds, you explode. <laughs> That's <laughs> Just the you movie explode. tagline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the other tagline is there are 4 billion people on earth, 237 are scanners. They have the most terrifying powers ever created and they are winning. So some good, uh, good information there. And you know, having those psychic powers is actually a little bit similar to uh, what I forgot about this other mainstream Cronenberg movie. Cause I always forget that it's a Cronenberg movie, the dead zone. Oh, nice. Good call. From, 1983, yeah, and that's starring Christopher Walken based on a Stephen King story. Stephen King story, yeah. Uh, Like I said, I always forget that's Cronenberg because it's not the body horror type movie. It's more of a drama almost with some horror elements. It really is. I mean, yeah, there there isn't really much horror in it. It's one of Steve's, like you said, almost a a drama, a mystery. It's kind of a a plot to assassinate the president and, and all that sort of thing. Another side story, if that's kind of funny, is you mentioned earlier that investors would get 100% tax credit if you invested in a Canadian movie. And my dad went through this weird phase, I think it was probably 1983 or so, where he was going to start investing in movies. And the ones I specifically remember was one was Heavy Metal, 
Nice. Because he was told this is going to be bigger than Star Wars. <laughs> and I remember he, it might have even been 81 or 82. And he, he promised, like, when this becomes huge, I'm going to, I'm going to buy you uh, the whole, every heavy metal toy that comes out. So I was probably like 11 or something like that. <laughs> I never became huger than Star Wars. But the other one, I remember, I thought it was Scanners, but talking with you, it was Videodrome. Oh, okay. I don't think he ever did uh, uh, invest, but there was talks. I remember that I was actually even probably primitive EPKs you know, they're trying to sell to investors. We had kind of a really fancy folder, Mylar with pictures on it. And you can look inside and here's why you should invest in Videodrome. And I totally remember that. Videodrome got Debbie Harry in it too. It did, right? Yeah, Blondie. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, how, how, how awesome is that? So a lot of Cronenberg uh, movies to check out. And later on, I'll bring up one more Cronenberg point, but let's move on to the next, uh, next one on your list because there's a lot of great ones. You got your 1980s, The Changeling. That's probably, yeah, the next one to go to because that, that's one of those movies where it's, yeah, it's a horror movie, definitely. It's a haunted house thing, but it's also just so well regarded and so well received that you kind of sometimes forget that it's included in the genre. Yeah. George C. Scott putting in a great performance although, <laughs> as the uh, protagonist of a ghost movie who is least perturbed by ghosts ever. <laughs> this guy is unshakable, <laughs> just unflappable in the face of ghosts. <laughs> yeah, this one it's not set in Canada because it's set in, I think first Connecticut. And then he moves to New York where this haunted house is, Yeah, but it's shot in Vancouver. I think also use that tax credit to make it classic, uh, Vancouver for New York city. Yeah, uh, that's right. <laughs> same as Jackie Chan rumble in the Bronx where they're in the Bronx. You can actually see mountains in the background. Yeah. A lot of mountains in the Bronx guys. And, uh, Jason takes Manhattan too, right? Isn't that Vancouver? Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody has a friend, who has this movie that they're always trying to push on you. And my friend Spiwi, my best friend Spiwi, he's not a horror guy, knows nothing about movies. I don't think he even knows the difference between Star Wars and Star Trek. He constantly talks about The Changing. I think he saw it when he was a kid. He's like, you got to see The Changing. You got to see The Changing. And is there a part in there where it's like, what is it? It's a hand. It's a hand. Oh, yeah. I think that's when they're digging up a body that they're trying to find. Yeah. So that's something he always <laughs> says. And I, like, I remember I watched it once. We were skiing once and we were hanging out at the condo after. And he, let's watch a movie. And so he puts on the fucking change. And it's, like, it's not a movie that you want to watch a prey ski, shall we no. say. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not the most uh, fast paced Right. Or exciting movie. And it, it, it feels old fashioned. It, it was it came out in 1980, but it's one of those movies, kind of like the entity, where it's Ooh. clearly a 70s movie. You know, even though it came out in 1980, it was made in the 70s. It feels like the 70s kind of pacing. Yeah, George C. Scott, his wife and daughter die in a car crash right off the bat. And so he's a pianist, a composer, and he tries, he's just trying to gather his life together and he moves into a kind of abandoned mansion where he a ghost child starts trying to communicate with him and he has to figure out what it's trying to say it's got a famous shot of a ball bouncing down the stairs and that gets referenced right everywhere like one, it's one of those things where once you know what it is you'll recognize it everywhere you can think of that in like a hundred different movies is the ball bouncing down the, the hallway yeah i recently compared it to the axe bathroom scene in the shining with how often it's referenced great call yeah and this was a very successful movie in canada it won eight genie awards mm -hmm. including best picture and genie award is canada's version of, of the oscars 
So definitely very well regarded. Because, I mean, how often does a horror movie win Best Motion Picture? I don't care if it's an Oscar, a Genie, or a Razzie, or, you know, a Slammy. <laughs> it's not uh, a very, uh, you know, average thing. So Yeah, and it even, uh, it did better at the box office and review-wise than The Shining, which was released the same year. Same year, right. Yeah, 1980. And also a similar style movie, very slow-moving that leads to kind of more of a explosive climax. So if you're into the slow-moving ghost movies... Uh, you might want to check out The Changeling. Yeah, it's one of those movies where the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, that's it. And then the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, no, this is a really good movie. I had to adjust my expectations because you hear that it's a horror movie. So you kind of maybe, especially in the the age of The Conjuring with haunted house movies, you, you might have a different expectation. But this is a much more um, almost cerebral movie, to use that term. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's move on to uh, away from the ghosts and back to more traditional slasher films. You've got one, and I've got one, uh, and, and the one that you were mentioning was My Bloody Valentine. I love My Bloody Valentine. <laughs> this was another movie that used that t- Canadian tax credit for sure, and another one where people were very upset about it because, in fact, the MPAA, so I guess it must have been for the U.S. release, uh, kept requiring it to trim stuff down and it ended up having to take out nine minutes yeah. of footage of some of the most gnarly and amazing special effects. And thankfully, this is not always the case when this happens, but with My Bloody Valentine, that footage was preserved and has been restored, thankfully, now in our modern age. So you can see these effects done by Tom Berman. There is a kill. Like, this is a slasher. So anyone who who wants to see a slasher, this is a good one to start off with. But it has a kill where a pickaxe goes up through a person's chin and kind of comes out their mouth a little bit. Mm. And it, it's just an incredible thing to see, all done practically, obviously. But this movie is super Canadian. Like, it's unabashedly Canadian. The accents <laughs> are there, and it takes place in, um, is it New Brunswick or or some rural Canadian mining town? Like, an actual mining town yeah it's just kind of a nondescript canadian mining town yeah valentine bluffs yeah one of my uh the funniest things is that the filmmakers found this mine and they were like this is perfect it's so grungy and dirty it's the perfect filming location and they tell the town all right we're gonna film in this mine and the town is so excited to have a movie production come to town that they're like Let's clean up the mine for them. And they spend tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> polishing and cleaning up this mine. And the film crew gets there and is like, oh, no. And they have to spend another no. few tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> to revert it back to being a dirty mine. You, you know what all the townspeople <laughs> said? Sorry, sorry, yeah, so, sorry, sorry, sorry. That's all over this movie, dude. <laughs> so when I was a kid, we would go find, you know, all of the movies on VHS, horror movies every weekend. And I... Never liked My Bloody Valentine, and I'll tell you the reason why. It's the same reason why I never liked Day of the Dead, Ooh. because what you said. When I saw the video, all of the kills and the gore was cut out. Okay. So I was like, this sucks. Nothing's happening. I didn't had no idea. When you're a kid, you don't know that there was nine minutes cut out of this. That's so much. Nine minutes. <laughs> like, a kill takes 10 seconds. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I was reading that those some of the footage removed was also kind of essential for the story because the gore would be used in a way that transitioned into another story element. And so when you remove those, it also leaves the movie itself kind of uh, nonsensical. Right. And th- and that's exactly what happened with Day of the Dead as well. They removed so much of Canadian, you know, censors. Much to my uh, shame, <laughs> I have never watched it again. So now on your uh, recommendation, I will go back and watch My Bloody Vampire. Of course, I saw the remake, which never is good. I'm assuming now that any print that you watch, anywhere you watch, is going to have the restored footage back in it again. And what's funny is you can tell when it goes to the restored footage because it's not as high def. Like it's grainier and because and they just had to grab whatever remaining surviving footage of it still existed. But yeah, what I love about My Bloody Valentine real fast is just how blue collar it is. It's not teen victims like you get in a lot of slashers. It's a bunch of like, I don't know, they're in their mid to late 20s, just dudes who never left home and they're working in the mine and they go from work to the pub to to drink beer. And it's just such a blue collar movie that <laughs> takes place in this real small town and it just feels so genuine. And you got the killer is running around in like a mining outfit with a pickaxe. It's great. Yeah, and it really is a, a great. It's almost a giallo. It's, it's a murder mystery that, that you do not you do not know who the killer is until the end. Yeah, and credit to the remake, they switch it up with the the killer reveal. So if you see the original and you're watching the remake and you're like, I know how this ends, the remake (laughs) is like, no, you don't, not quite. (laughs) Let me ask you this, James. I just mentioned Giallo. Uh, If you're talking about J-horror or even K-horror now, Korea horror, Japan horror, for Mm -hmm. for those of you that might not be familiar, there's always a certain vibe to it, a certain style. Is there a certain style to, to, to Canadian movies that make it a little bit different? I don't think so, except for looking at my list, there's not really a stylistic or genre through line or commonality to all of them. The thing that feels like it's present in all of these is just thought and care. And I'm sure that there's a lot of Canadian horror movies that were made for cheap and just to, to make a quick buck. But at least the ones on this list that we're talking about all seem like they wanted to do something different, even within the confines of the subgenres and the tropes that they're playing on. It, it feels like, they uh, were were being artistic about it, you know, because we're going to get to Ginger Snaps later, yeah. which is a werewolf movie, but it, it's still an interesting and unique spin on that. To me, it always seems it's the same with Canadian television. Um, if you talk about, let's say, like, like everyone talks about Degrassi now, mm-hmm. you know, I watched Degrassi when it was current. You know, what's going on next week? Always had a little bit of a of a cheapness to it. Like it was a little bit under budget, so to speak, you know, didn't, or didn't have a great budget, Yeah, but it was still very quality with the script writing and the stories. I find that a lot with Canadian movies too, is there, it always seems like it's a little bit cheaper than a high gloss Hollywood film. You know, like if you look at the changing, for example, or, or, you know, my bloody Valentine from what I, when I saw it, you can tell like it's not, you know, a $30 million movie, but that's okay. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not a, it's not a B movie. It's just not, a high budget movie. You're right. They don't have the funds, but they overcome yes. that deficiency with just care and talent. Yeah. And I find that with, with my uh, contribution here, of course, Hello, Mary Lou, Prom Night 2. Oh, yeah. Which <laughs> was brought to my attention by Darcy the Mail Girl from Last Drive-In, one of her favorite movies. And I watched it on her recommendation. And man, what a great movie this is. Dude, that movie is buck wild. <laughs> you know, it is. And once again, it's you know sequel to Prom Night. So you're like, well, how good? They went a completely different direction. This is now more of almost a, a ghost, you know, a, a returning demonic presence here with Mary Lou. She's ethereal. She's supernatural. And there's just, like you said, this is buck wild, this film. Let's talk a little bit about it. 
Yeah, it's actually a standalone sequel. You don't have to see the first Prom Night right. to watch this at all. And they're entirely different movies, in fact. The, the first Prom Night is also a Canadian film, and that came out in 1980. Slasher, Jamie Lee Curtis. I didn't realize how many Canadian slashers she did, because she also did Terror Train. <laughs> she did, yeah. Which is another Canadian slasher. I didn't know but, Terror Train uh, was Canadian. I didn't know either until very recently when researching for this episode. But yeah, that first Prom Night is pretty straightforward. I really enjoy it, but... Prom Night 2 comes out seven years later in 1987 and is an entirely different movie. It's supernatural. Like you said, there's like a possession element to it. It's one of those movies. Oh, you got Michael Ironside again. Again, he's it. back. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And it's one of those movies where you can tell they probably in the writer's room or or while uh, looks like Ron Oliver was writing this. Whatever idea he had, he didn't want to throw away. He just <laughs> yeah, stuck exactly. to it all and worked it in because... Yeah, there's like a weird possessed rocking horse. There's a lot of weird kills. Oh, man. The locker room scene stands out to me from watching it as a young kid. Well, two things that I love. One, it's a very Carrie-esque beginning. Instead of dropping a bucket of blood, they drop a stink bomb on her. Oh, yeah. Except for the stink bomb lights her on fire and envelops her and kills her. So now she comes back for her revenge. And like you mentioned, the locker room scene, to kind of give me a brief overview of the locker room scene, James. It's been a second since I've seen this, but I'll set it up and you tell me the finish. So basically somebody's hiding. uh, She hides in a locker to escape from the evil Mary Lou. Mary Lou comes in and And she's walking around completely naked, completely full frontal walking around like props to that actress for the bravery of doing that. (laughs) Just and and the confidence that she has while doing it because she looks great, too. Yeah. And she's a possessed killer. So like she has she can't be like coy about it all. She's walking around. Like, this is how she's supposed to be. And then doesn't it end with the uh, person in the locker getting crushed telekinetically? Like, yes. the locker crushes her and blood everywhere? The, the best part is it's almost like if you envision, like, a jelly donut. If you squeeze the jelly <laughs> yeah. donut, and, the, and that's what you get. The locker room gets – lockers get crushed, and pfft, this deluge of, of blood comes right out. So, uh, definitely Mary Lou has everything that you want in a, a 80s horror, from the great kills to just – nakedness everywhere which was always a uh, uh you know a prerequisite for an 80s uh, slasher movie so yeah it, it checks the box and everything you know if you were doing a joe bob uh uh drive-in total there'd be some great ones here yeah and that was one uh <laughs> we'll do commentary tracks for our patreon where we watch a movie and record our audio commentary with it and with that one i had my wife watch it even before she had ever seen prom night i was like you don't need to watch prom night and we watched it and we loved it and then we later watched the first prom night and we loved that too for entirely different reasons so prom night series great i haven't seen the third or fourth ones in uh decades so i can't speak for those but probably not as good the longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards the longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards why bring this up Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So let's go more into uh, some more, more modern movies here as we step into the 90s. Yeah, so that tax credit thing expired in 82, and obviously they were still making horror movies because Hello, Mary Lou came out in 87. But 
in the 90s, early 90s, things kind of started to die down, it seems, because I think partly the video market, the emerging VHS rental, uh, full moon type direct-to-video movies started to dominate the horror genre. I mean, the early 90s is a weird period for horror in general because the titans of the, the slashers in the 80s, those are starting to die out and get real long in the tooth, like Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, and Jason Goes to Hell, and these mm-hmm. poorly received sequels. And the genres, I feel like it's trying to find itself. Obviously, Scream would kickstart a new resurgence of the genre in 96. Great call. In, in Canada, we had something different, because in 97, Cube comes out, which is, again, a sci-fi horror movie, which is kind of a runner in uh, Canadian horror. But Cube is a really interesting movie in that very low budget and it overcomes those constraints because it uh takes place in a giant uh structure that is imprisoning people and they don't remember how they got there why they're there they're just in a cube room with hatches on every side and if they open a hatch and go into the next room it's another cube with a different color and half of those have booby traps that'll kill them. Right. So they're they're trying to navigate their way through this giant structure and find a way out without getting killed. What's really interesting is that the was that budget $600,000? That's insane because it it was one set that they used. Yeah. All those cubes that you see is just the same cube with different lighting and colors to make it look different. And I have it here at 350,000 Canadian. Oh shit, so okay. Even less. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was directed by Vincenzo Natali, which I believe is a Italian Canadian. Oh, yeah. He's actually done some interesting things. I forgot his other movies. But uh, when was the last time you saw Cube? Well, it's funny. I didn't think I had seen it until you brought it up and I read the plot. I remember this movie because I remember how just insane it was. Like we said here again, on a budget of, I mean, 300 grand, 350 Canadian at the time was probably about 200, maybe 250 tops. And just the fact they were able to make such an intricate movie because it is based on everybody's like in a cube and no one knows where they're going or why they're there. It's a very strange movie, very Kafka-esque, shall we say. But I remember really enjoying it, but I was kind of also kind of confused as to really what's going on, even though it was very interesting. And sometimes movies are made to be that way. You know, Stephen King always says, there's sometimes there is no explanation for why certain things happen. And I didn't really feel, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm forgetting something. Was there an overall reason as to why they're in these cubes? Did we, did we ever find out? I don't think we get a reason as to why. I don't think so. Right. Yeah. I think that might be revealed in the sequels, which I think zoom out a little bit and see like the construction of the cube and the people behind running the cube in the original movie. You do have it revealed that one of the people who is in this group actually helped design at least the outer shell of the cube. And that helps them try to find a way out of it. But uh, yeah, that director, Vincenzo Natale, I might've been wrong about Bob Clark earlier because this is the guy who was born in Detroit before emigrating to Canada. But he also did Splice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's a weird-ass movie. 2009, Adrian Brody. A lot of weird um, genetic experimentation and and some incest stuff going on in there right super weird he also did in the tall grass which came out on netflix a couple of years ago which was based on a i think a stephen king or maybe a joe hill story but yeah cube it's one of those movies where it's very dialogue driven it's driven by the points of views of the characters uh you got like a cop and you got like more of a hippie lady and you got like a, a numbers woman the acting can sometimes be a little over the top and uh, like not great <laughs> 
but it's great because everyone's committing to it and I just love it. I find it very interesting. Once again, very much worth watching and especially in the light of all these kind of uh, escape room films that are coming out now and there's some stinkers there and a couple decent ones, but this is a really cool version and one of the originals too like you said came out in 1997 so 97 yeah so this is long before saw long before escape room yeah definitely this was a trapped and trying to figure out a way out type of movie and what's great is that even though it's had a very low budget it did super well financially and that kind of uh revitalized canadian filmmakers into making horror movies it was probably that and the fact that scream was making them popular again in the united states that we get a few more leading to ginger snaps in 2000. Yeah, just a quick segue. It's always great yeah. when, when, like we mentioned earlier, and I'll just say it one more time. It's always cool when you get a movie like Cube because it did make $9 million. Yeah. You know, we mentioned Terrifier 2. We talked about Paranormal Activity and Blair Witch. When these low, small budget movies make millions and millions of dollars. Now, listen, you know and I know we watch hundreds of horror films a year and most of them don't, but all it takes is one to just kind of really massage the the creative juices for directors and filmmakers everywhere because you never know it could be you yeah and that just makes for a better films and a better genre for us yeah it's a good reminder that you don't always need money to make something good that's right that's right so let's talk about ginger snaps ginger snaps man <laughs> ginger snaps is a movie where which did have money it, it did have more money yeah and this came out in 2000 <laughs> it's it's one of those movies where the more i watch it the more i like it is one of those where the first time i watched it, i was like oh That was kind of it. But then you watch it more and more. And it's a werewolf movie that's a metaphor, blatant metaphor. They don't try to hide it for uh, puberty and menstruation. It's a very feminist film. It was written by Karen Walton, who uh, would go on to do a lot of Orphan Black episodes, which is a a fun, interesting sci-fi film, like dark sci-fi. Yeah. And and she wrote this as a metaphor for getting your period. And it stars um, Emily Perkins who was in the uh, the It miniseries. Mm. She was one of the kids back then. She was Beverly, Bev Marsh in that. And Canadian's darling, horror darling, Catherine Isabel, who is in all sorts of things from, um, she's in Freddy versus Jason. She's also in American Mary, which uh, we can talk about later, but she is all over the place. She's in Bones, that Snoop Dogg movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, and like a, a kind of a small role, but she's kind of like a horror darling and it's those two as these young outcast sisters who, even though they're like 15 or 16, they still haven't had their period yet. And they're outcasts in their high school. And then finally ginger played by Catherine Isabel does get her period on like the same night she's bitten by a werewolf. And so she's transforming into a werewolf while hitting puberty and coming out of her own shell and she becomes way more sexual and uh starts like killing the the guys and the the mean girls at school and her sister's trying to save her and it's a great movie the the monthly menstruation aka the monthly transformation into into a werewolf you know it's yeah it's the full moon it's right yeah, there yeah 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 this movie had a really big budget and did not do well at the box office so that happens too at times right yeah, definitely it was one of those that came out, didn't do great, but quickly became a cult favorite because people saw it later and were like, oh, this is actually an interesting movie because, yeah, you even got Mimi Rogers as this mom character who's really interesting. She's It's so easy in these movies to have like a mom and parents who 
are just strictly antagonistic and they don't get it. But Mimi Rogers is this mom who who's trying to connect with these kids and they don't. But then later when she finds out that something's going wrong and that she thinks her kids have killed people, I don't think she realizes the full extent of the werewolf thing. She has this great scene where she's like, all right, we're going to go home. We're going to burn down the house and we're going to escape and just like start a new life. And they're like, what about dad? And she's like, dad doesn't get it. It's fine. It'll just be the three of us. It'll be fine. <laughs> and also to uh, begat uh, quite a few sequels as well. So it did. I haven't seen those yet. Ginger snaps to unleashed and oh, a prequel Ginger snaps back at the beginning. Interesting. This had quite a buzz uh, about it when it first came up. Number two, there was, a, there was quite a, a soundtrack for it. I, I remember this, there was a very heavy kind of uh, early 2000 metal uh, vibe to it yeah yeah it's got kill switch engage it's got fear factory uh yeah, machine head all the bands of the day right yeah really really tr- it's a time capsule it transforms you back to the early 2000s immediately and yeah the only thing i don't like about this movie is the werewolf effect like when you get to the werewolf later it's yeah doesn't look great but that's fine you can kind of get over it i guess if you just if you don't focus on it too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah well and that's another thing too like you mentioned you can once again do a whole the show on this as well you can see the difference and that's why i really enjoyed uh a terrifier 2 and a, a few other movies that i've seen recently with the practical effects it's kind of the return the computer effects the cgi like you mentioned that werewolf was kind of compare that to you know uh rick baker and american werewolf in london it's like ah oh, bring back the practical effects you know so it's always cool just to see that well, I, I think this werewolf is practical in this movie. It's oh, it just, just didn't look good. <laughs> it just looks like a rubber suit. Like, it doesn't look great, unfortunately. And you're right. The I'll always want practical effects, but this is a good example of how they're not always better. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, it, it's right, easy yeah. to be like, oh, CG sucks. Practical effects always better. And not always. <laughs> it, it depends on who's uh, who's doing it, I guess, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Let's talk about a very uh, interesting um, movie, Haunting Pool. Yeah. That, I, I don't know if a lot of people have seen this one before. It's a, it is. When you pointed that one, I was like, oh, I remember that because it's directed by Bruce McDonald, who's done quite a few interesting movies, including Hardcore Logo, which is one of my favorite movies. It's kind of a punk rock mockumentary sort of thing. Oh, cool. I haven't seen that. Yeah, it's, it stars this guy from Canada called Hugh, Hugh uh, I can't remember his last name. He was in a band called The Headstones. And, and he was a very popular kind of Iggy Pop, Johnny Rotten type guy. So for him, uh, Hugh Dillon is his name. For him to be in the movie was kind of really cool. So he does have street cred as being a very cool uh, filmmaker. Yeah, Pontypool is a movie I just recently covered earlier this year on the the Kill Count, the flagship show on my channel. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to cover down the Kill Count. And I said that, but I just want more people to know about it. And the reason it doesn't make a lot of sense to cover is because the Kill Count's a very visual show. I'm narrating over footage. This movie takes place entirely in one location, in a radio station. Wow. So it's not vi- very visually dynamic, but it's kind of like sound zombies is the premise, if you had to boil it down. Sound zombies. How does that, what do you mean? Yeah. 
or not even zombies. It's like a sound infection. What happens in this movie is that turns out that certain words can infect people with a disease that'll like make them repeat words and make them lose their linguistic meaning. What's it called? The satiation uh, salience or something like when you say a word over and over and over again, it stops making sense to you. You know, yeah, I got you. Right. Sure, sure, sure. It's very similar in that regard. So if you say an infected word in this movie, that's what will start to happen to you until you're banging your head against walls and you're trying to eat your own tongue. And it it, it gets pretty <laughs> nasty, but it, it it's real spooky because a lot of it, like I said, takes place in a radio station. So it's following a radio host and the very small crew in there. So a lot of it, you just hear over the radio as he's trying to talk to people and figure out what's going on outside of the station. And eventually it infiltrates the station, but most of it is, it, I mean, it was originally conceived of as a radio play. They were just going to do this narrated kind of war of the worlds style thing. And then when they decided to make it a movie, their first idea was to just have it a single shot on the radio host's face and still have it be entirely audio driven. And that eventually expanded out. But what they wanted to make sure they did was keep it confined to that radio station. So they were even hesitant to show like the exterior establishing shot of the setting because they just really wanted to confine everything. And just what what Pontypool, because it takes place in the small town of Pontypool. Yes, a real Ontario. town. Yes. yes, that is an actual place. So have you ever been there? I have not. I have not. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, me neither. I'm sure, I'm sure there's a billboard there now. Home of the movie Pontypool. Pontypool <laughs> yeah. Let's wind down here, James. Let's do one more on your end. Then I got uh, one more to, to lay on you, see if you've seen it or not to, to kind of talk about. So your last one on your list is American Mary. That's right. 2012, which uh, is 10 years ago now, which sucks. But uh, <laughs> that is directed by the Soska sisters, Jen and Sylvia Soska. Oh, I know them. Yeah, everyone who's uh, deep into horror knows them. They're they're very cult filmmakers. I believe they did See No Evil 2. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the WWE movie with Kane as the killer. Yeah, That's right. I haven't seen the sequel. I saw the first one. And you know what? That first See No Evil, I went in with low expectations because it was like a slasher from the early 2000s, which is maybe my least favorite subgenre. It's also a WWE movie, so. <laughs> yeah, that too. I wasn't going to say it, but yeah. I mean, they gave us Leprechaun Origins, which is one of the <laughs> biggest piles of crap. But uh, that first one was actually pretty good. And I'm, I'm eager to see the second one. But American Mary is their movie. Again, starring Catherine Isabel from Ginger Snaps. Ah, yes, there you go, yep. Catherine Isabel plays a med student who's trying to advance her way through to be like a a surgeon. And she starts getting these black market jobs of doing cosmetic surgery on body modifiers. And what's cool is that a lot of the extras in this movie are played by actual people who have done the body modification. We're talking like the very lowest things are like, you might think of like gauges in your ear. But no, no, these people are getting subdermal implants of like spikes and piercings or like horns implanted into their skin or their ears or teeth filed down or wanting to resemble a human doll where they remove their nipples yes. all external genitalia and partially suturing her vulva shut that is what happens in the movie yeah and that's early on that's first act shit man yeah that's the first that's the beginning of the movie yeah yeah and that that character's friend is the one I really love because she's trying to make herself Betty Boop and she has like the Betty Boop voice. It's very unnerving, but the the performance is so good. Yeah, I watched this recently actually on a, a stream with my patrons and I, I really like the premise of it. I think the body modification thing is really cool. 
I love Catherine Isabel. I, I do feel like it almost kind of loses its way. Like the first half hour is very good. It becomes this. She gets invited to this party with these doctors and they they like drug her and take advantage of her. Yeah. So there's like a rape revenge element, which is its own subgenre. But like that happens so suddenly. And then it kind of meanders for the last hour, but uh, it's still got some cool visuals to it. And it's still an interesting idea at the very least. Interesting concept for sure as well. Yeah. 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 So last thing I want to talk to you about is Slasher. Have you seen it? No. So Slasher is a TV series. So Canadian. I mean, it is Canadian, but it is excellent. I didn't realize it was Canadian. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And once you watch it, you'll know. I mean, the, the accents are there. But they're basically four seasons, 10 episodes each, and they're all Jallo, who is the killer. And the kills are amazing. Oh, okay. And actually in the fourth season, it's basically about this uh, rich billionaire who hates his family because they're all just evil people and plots them all against each other where the winner – the only survivor will get all his money. And that billionaire is played by David Cronenberg. So he's actually on screen. <laughs> oh, that's great. He was on screen in Jason X too. He gets killed right off the bat in the beginning. There you go. So, so the four, actually, I just found out that there's a fifth season coming, which is amazing. So it's the executioner, guilty party, solstice, flesh and blood are the four. Uh, and you can watch them. I think they're on Netflix. I think one of them is on uh shutter. The yeah. last season's on Shutter, But dude, I'll tell you what, man. It is worth watching because it is really good. And these kills, like I told you, are just absolutely insane. I've had it recommended for sure. Very much so. There's a human dissection, which is insane. Great. It's just really, really well done. And each year, uh, each season, there is a, uh, a serial killer wearing some sort of a mask or something like that. You know, you find out who is at the end. And it's also, it reminds me a lot of, uh, I call it Canadian horror story. Yeah. I was just saying, cause uh, I'm looking at the cast list and it looks like there are some actors who play a different character in each season, which is a very American horror story. Very much so. Yeah. And it's also very much um, LGBTQ oriented, which reminds me of American horror story in that way. But I can't, I can't recommend it enough. And seeing Cronenberg actually playing this character was quite funny to be honest with you, but my favorite one that I would, that I would uh, recommend is solstice. If you're looking and you can watch any season, you don't have to watch them in order. Like they're all, yeah, that's, it's yeah that's another anthological kind of, exactly. It's another uh, American horror story trope and that each one is different from the last. So I would definitely give uh, somebody the recommendation for that one as well. Yeah, it looks like what's cool is that it looks like it's survived moving around different services. Yeah. It, yeah, the first season was on Chiller, which I don't think exists anymore. Right. And then two and three were on Netflix. And then, yeah, they got the fourth one over on Shudder. I love Shudder. I love that service. Yeah, that, that's great when something can, can survive those moves. And I was hoping it looks like the new season of Ripper. It's Executioner, Guilty Party, Solstice, Flesh and Blood, and Ripper. Oh, like Jack the Ripper. Jack okay. the Ripper. You go back in time for Jack the Ripper. So, cool. James, it's, it's been, last question for you. What is your favorite Canadian horror movie? Of all the ones we've discussed, is the one that stands out? Oh, man. That's a good question. <laughs> oh, man. On the spot. Honestly, like a shoot from the hip answer, dude, is one that I didn't even bring up. It was it's Mary Lou. Like, hello, Mary Lou. Probably. Oh, yeah. I just, it's just such a blast to watch. It's not the best one. Cronenberg would probably have like one of the best made ones or Black Christmas, I think, is a fucking masterpiece. But right. as far as like. I want to have a good time and maybe have a few beers and, and just like laugh at a movie. Hello, Mary Lou prom night too is just so fun. 
one. Yeah, dude, I got to give you that as well. And uh, <laughs> on potential, I'm really excited to go back and revisit My Bloody Valentine just on your recommendation because you've seen them all. So if you are that high on it, then I'm going to go back and give it a try. Yeah, those kills are just they're so gruesome. It's so worth checking out. Well, James, it's great talking to you, man. And I'm sure uh, I'll be happy to do your show again. And, and when we think of a cool topic, come back and, and do mine. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. Awesome, dude. Well, talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. See you later, man.